Welcome to AAA Sky. Today, we're discussing the surprising history of telescope making and observatories in New York City. I'm Stanley Furtick. And I'm Maggie Machinsky. AAA Sky is produced by the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York, whose mission is to promote the study of astronomy and to emphasize its cultural and inspirational value. Find out more about AAA at aaa.org. First, here's a word from our president, Brian Berg. Hello, and welcome to the December edition of AAA Sky, the official podcast of the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York. I am Brian Berg, the president of AAA. As always, I want to thank you all for coming here and listening to our podcast. 2021, of course, has had many challenges for the world, but AAA has been here, is here, and will always be here to present a community for like-minded, open-minded, science-minded individuals as we all are. We've accomplished so much this year, and I wanted to thank all of you for your support. As we head into 2022, there'll be many more undertakings, and I hope that you're all here along with us to enjoy everything that we do and everything that we offer, because it's all about you, and it's all for you, all of us, everyone who's part of this community. So I want to thank again everybody here for your support. If you are not already a AAA member, please consider becoming one. Just go to AAA.org to join and to see the list of all of our activities. I hope all of you have a fantastic new year, and we will all see you back here at the podcast, online, at our lectures, at our classes, at our observing events, everything that we do in 2022. We're happy today to welcome back to the AAA Sky, telescope historian extraordinaire, Bart Fried. Those of you who heard our interview with Bart during the podcast's last season know that Bart is executive vice president of the Amateur Astronomers Association, as well as a former AAA board member. He's an avid observational astronomer, and most importantly, Bart's also a renowned historian whose field of research is the history of the telescope. He also collects and restores antique telescopes. In fact, in 1991, Bart founded the Antique Telescope Society and served two terms as its president. In addition to the AAA, he's a life member of the Delaware Valley Amateur Astronomers, former board member of the Custer Institute, a member of the Astronomical Society of Long Island, and a member of the Amateur Observer Society of New York. When he's not spending his time on telescopes, Bart has found the time to be a successful international businessman, as well as a professional landscape architect. We spoke to Bart at his home via Zoom. Hello, Bart. Welcome back to AAA Sky. Hey, Stan. It is a pleasure to be back, and uh, I look forward to it. Well, the last time we spoke, uh, you told us about the initial development of the telescope itself, um, Isaac, Sir Isaac Newton, etc., Today, we're going to talk about some history a bit closer to home, namely early astronomy in New York City. Now, when you think of the locations on the Earth for a rich history in astronomy and related fields, this city is not the first place to come to mind. Generally speaking, was New York a significant hub for historically for astronomy compared to other cities like, say, Philly or Boston? In the early history of the United States, the answer would be no. Uh, probably Boston very early on because of its uh, history with Harvard and Philadelphia and its relationship to the University of Pennsylvania, uh, both and, and being really the, the major city in the country up until, let's say, the Revolution and early 1800s. Uh, you see a, a fairly robust development of astronomy in both of those cities, and not much going on in New York. But things really started to flip probably around, uh, I'm going to say, the 1830s, 1840s. Right. And part, of that was, part of that was the development of the camera, uh, which really took off 
in New York City. Uh, well, do you want to tell us a bit about that? So we're talking about the early 19th century here. Yeah, the early 19th century is when things really started to take off. Now, there were there were amateur astronomers in all of the cities, and astronomy as a uh, as an interest was really picking up in in the Americas, but we didn't have nearly the tradition that you had in Germany or the UK or France or Italy. Not yet. So, not yet. But it was, but but the 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 well-educated people were were starting to really pick up on it. And one, one of those was um, a professor, uh, John Draper, who was also a medical doctor at NYU. And he was here in New York, and he was, uh, he was a polymath, as many uh, science-minded people were in those days. It wasn't just medicine that he was interested in. So he, he was interested in astronomy, and in 1840... Uh, there were people taking photographs in parlors here in New York City. Now, the, the camera uh, first hit New York City around 1838. 18, around. I think, yeah, around 1838. Daguerre's process uh, was, was spectacular news here in New York. So, uh, Walcott and... Uh, a friend of his, Henry Fitz, were making early cameras and taking pictures of people. Draper, realizing that Walcott was using a reflecting camera, uh, started taking pictures of the moon. And he was the first to photograph the moon anywhere in the world. And that was in 1840. Uh, so then he, uh, he passed along his interest to his son, Henry, who really got also a doctor, by the way, and a and a professor at NYU, uh, picked up where his father left off. Uh, Henry was the first to photograph the Orion Nebula, which was actually the first photograph of any uh, deep sky object. He probably did a much better job than I did. Well, he <laughs> did a really he did a, actually a pretty good job. I've I've seen the the original. Uh, it's hanging uh, up in Hastings on Hudson where his observatory was, out in the suburbs. Well, in those days, it was the, really the countryside. And he pioneered uh, a, a sort of a new field, uh, which was, I'm going to call it spectrography, or you know, spectrum photography. So he took spectrographs, stellar spectrographs, and planetary spectrographs. Uh, unfortunately, he died very young at age... 45 in 1882 but he had already made a worldwide reputation for himself because of his his spectral work yeah i think um there is the henry draper catalog of the, stars yeah which... he didn't make that though that was actually his wife uh making a bequest to harvard and they took the money uh to to produce the henry draper catalog uh but he wasn't really involved in it because he died so young now, the one other thing that Henry Draper did, which may be as important or more important even than, than, than the, the astronomical work that he did, was he wrote a book called On the Construction of a Silvered Glass Telescope, 15 and a half inches in aperture, and its use in celestial photography. And this was published really? by the Smithsonian in 1864. Really? Well, this became this was the this became the Bible for people who wanted to make a telescope and do celestial photography. How to grind the mirror, how to polish the mirror, how to silver it. Okay, and this is very early in the history of silvering on glass. Most mirrors up until that time were polished speculum metal. So this and this book was was huge. And because it was printed by the Smithsonian, it, it wasn't copyrighted, and so it went around the world uh, and was hugely influential. One of the well, one of the people that was influenced by this uh, was Henry Fitz, uh, but uh, we'll get back to that in a minute. But there was a competitor, so to speak, for for Draper in New York City, and this this was a lawyer, a guy named Lewis Morris Rutherford. Not Rutherford, it's U-R-D. That always gets mistaken. Uh, 
Rutherford was an, he was an instrumentalist and an astrophotographer and a spectroscopist, all three. But he wasn't a trained astronomer, interestingly. He was totally self-taught. Hmm. Uh, one of the things he did, which was very interesting, is he produced his own diffraction gratings. Now, if you do spectroscopy, most spectroscopes are made by a prism or prism trains. And these prisms break up the light, you know, into multiple colors. And then if you put them through a slit, you can, and, and if you use a telescope, now you have a, an astronomical spectroscope and you can look at the, the spectra of stars and planets and whatnot. So there was an improvement to that method that gave brighter results and better first order spectra. And that was using something called a diffraction grating. If you think of uh, holding a, a CD or a DVD in the light and, and all those little dots break it up into rainbows, that's a diffraction grating right. in, in, in essence. But a really good diffraction grating has five or 10,000 lines per inch ruled perfectly parallel and blazed at a slight angle. And it has to be done on a very flat surface. You really want it to be about one-tenth to one-twentieth wave flat. Now, in those days, that was That's a really flat. hard thing to produce. The flat itself was difficult enough. Yeah. And then what Rutherford did was he developed a, a ruling machine uh, to scribe these lines one at a time across the surface. And he made diffraction gratings that were about oh, half an inch by an inch. Uh, and it would take him days and weeks to produce one of these gratings. I would have and, to believe that. And very difficult to do. And there are there are about three or four of them that, that still survive. And, that was and, my and, next question. Yeah, yeah, a friend of mine actually has one. Wow. Uh, so he also, interestingly, designed what some people think of as the first photographic telescope lens. So the, the glass plates for the, for the daguerreotypes were more sensitive in the blue. And so if you used a visual uh, achromatic lens, part of the problem with that is blue is the one color that doesn't get focused really well. And you get these violet halos around the moon or, or Venus, right. really bright stars. So in order to get rid of that, uh, he developed a photographic lens that would be more sensitive on the blue side of the visual spectrum and he had a 13 inch clark refractor he hired henry fritz fitz here in new york uh to produce a photographic correcting element for it uh unfortunately fitz died and he coached his son harry fitz who who finished the lens and that telescope actually still exists uh it was it was donated to uh Columbia University, really? and uh, they had it for a long time, and it's now in a, in a private collection in New Mexico. So that one's still around. Too, too bad for us here. Well, yeah. you mentioned a couple of times um, Henry Fitz and his son, so maybe we should talk a little bit about the commercial telescope manufacturers in New York City in this period. Yeah, um, you know, the, the commercial telescope sellers, first of all, started out in many cases to be importers and did repair work and eventually some lens work. One of the first ones was Benjamin Pike, and he was in business uh, up until about 1831, and uh, he started out in business around 1806, and he was very well known around the country. Uh, if you wanted to buy a telescope, you, you'd pull open his catalog. It was like before the Sears catalogs existed, I think. And uh, he had a very uh, thriving business, very successful business. His sons got into the business. Uh, there was uh, Benjamin Pike and Son. Then it was Benjamin Pike and Sons. Then it was Benjamin Pike Jr. And his other son broke off. Uh, I think it was Edward Pike. Uh, broke off and had his own business. So the, the the Pikes sort of had this little mini dynasty of instrument making and selling and telescopes. And I owned at one point a Benjamin Pike Jr. Uh, refractor. Uh, do you miss it? Three, 
Uh, well, I used it for a while. It was a lot of fun, but you know, uh, you move on, and if you're a collector, <laughs> you buy and sell, right? So um, that that company didn't make much of its optics early on. Now, Benjamin Pike Jr. was successful enough that he had a mansion here in New York City, which was purchased by the Steinways of the piano fame. And that Steinway mansion is over in Astoria, uh, up on a hill, and uh, kind of overlooks the, uh, well, it did at one time overlook the Long Island Sound. Yeah, it's, it's, a, a, it's a famous building. Ah, it's five stories high with a big uh, big tower on top and yeah. a granite building. It's really cool. Although I imagine at that time, uh, that was in full countryside, Astoria. Yeah, know? pretty much. And and one of the things about this house, and I've been in it a couple of times, there's a beautiful uh, double door off the, the between the like the library and the grand parlor and it has magnificent uh, windows that are acid etched with images of all of the instruments that he sold microscopes telescopes sextants and I mean it was a really broad <laughs> but, range of products but and no they pianos didn't no that would well that would have been the Steinways this was right. yeah so no piano so at that time, by by the you know the middle uh, of the 1800s, a couple of people were really getting into this business, and one of them was uh, Henry Fitz Jr. and his uh, he used Jr. up until the 1849 when his father died, and then you see his telescope signed Henry Fitz. So Fitz started out as a locksmith. Actually, started out as a, a uh, helping his father in a printing business. And he liked the machinery of printing more than the religious items that his father was printing. <laughs> so he was very mechanically inclined. He also was interested from an early age in astronomy. And he bought small telescopes for himself. So he moved on out of the printing uh, business into becoming a locksmith. This was in the 1830s. And as a locksmith, again, he could use his mechanical skill. And one of the friends of his, because of his astronomy interest, was uh, Alexander Simon Walcott. So Walcott uh, asked Henry uh, to help him finish a speculum mirror for a Cassegrain telescope. Now, nobody in this country had made a Cassegrain reflector ever up till that point. Right. And Walcott's going to give it a try. Uh, we believe he read an article in uh, a publication that came out by Brewster where there's a prescription given for, well, for different sizes of Cassegrain reflectors. And, and the mirror that he was making fits that prescription perfectly. But he, he, Walcott failed at it, and he handed it off to the mechanically inclined Henry Fitz, who said, I'll tackle this thing. And by 1837, he had finished the mirror, and in 1838, he produced a Cassegrain reflector. Uh -huh. This reflector was just sold at auction last week for $30,000. Just nobody, last week? Nobody knew it existed. It sat in in Henry Fitz's son's workshop out in Peconic, Long Island for about 80 years, unknown, and was just discovered and sold in an auction. Amazing. So anyway, Henry, Henry uh, makes this telescope. He makes it pretty much for himself. Um, although he beautifully engraved it and put the date on it and what it was and, and who he was and the whole bit. So, but now the camera comes along and Walcott says that the heck with the heck with telescopes. Let's jump on this camera business. So right. he has Henry making mirrors for reflecting daguerreotype cameras instead of a lens. It's basically a prime focus almost like a prime focus astrograph, only you're not taking pictures of stars, you're taking portraits. Right. And, and the advantage of it was it collected a lot more light than the little lenses in, in the earliest, very earliest box daguerreotype cameras. So Henry's making these mirrors, but then uh, they, and they get into uh, uh, doing portrait photography, but he decides he wants to make telescopes and he goes off to France to learn how to grind and polish lenses and also to secure sources of optical glass which were unavailable in the States. There was okay. nobody making good optical glass. 
and he comes back, and for a couple years, he moves to Baltimore, and he's still in the photography business. But then he moves back to New York, and by about 1842, 1843, he is now making telescopes. And that's all he did for the rest of his life was produce telescopes. Uh, as, a, as an aside, he did make one more Cassegrain telescope. It was a 13-inch Cassegrain for Rutherford. Huh. Who, well, Rutherford wanted it for astrophotography, realizing that it would have no chromatic aberration. And the guy up the road, uh, you know, John, uh, Henry Draper, was having these spectacular results with his 15-inch reflector, right? right? So Rutherford, not to be outdone, wants a 13-inch Cassegrain, uh, but he had one problem. The problem was that, and Fitz in this this case made it with a silvered gla silver on glass uh, optical combination. Right. But in New York City, you had everybody burning coal to heat their homes and, uh -huh. run, their, and run their factories, and the silver would tarnish about every ten days. And oh my it drove, gosh! It drove Rutherford nuts. And after I don't know a couple months of playing around with it, he put it aside and never used it again. Nobody knows what wow. happened to that. Uh, but, it, you know, it's a great, <laughs> sort of a great aside. So getting back to the Fitzes, mm -hmm. um, I think. So, yeah. Well, there was a story. What happened with Henry Fitz, he was, he was America's first commercially successful telescope maker. And he was wildly successful. His telescopes went all over the country. Uh, he made telescopes up to 16 or 17 inches in diameter. I think 16 uh, we have a record of one that went to some guy named Van Duzee in New York, uh, not in the city, in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, he made probably several hundred telescopes. There are still, I'll say, 40 or 50 of them uh, that are known to exist. I had uh, looked through probably four or five of them, and they're excellent. And then he bought a house. He was operating in Lower Manhattan. Uh, I think the last last location was uh, uh, like Lower Fifth Fifth Avenue. Great. And or no, I'm sorry, local Lower uh, around Fifth Street, not Fifth Avenue, Fifth Street. He okay. bought a new house. He had married. He had a couple kids already. And then, um, as the legend goes, a brand new chandelier fell and killed him. <laughs> okay, that that story uh, came about from his granddaughter, uh, but unfortunately, there for her and her story, there are uh, actual medical records uh, from the medical examiner about his death, and he died from um, consumption, which tuberculosis. is tuberculosis, tuberculosis, right? Yeah. And uh, he put, he had it for a while, but it, you know, it caught up with him, and he died somewhat suddenly. I suspect pneumonia was also in there. Uh, that, that probably took him very quickly. But I so think the chandelier is, would have been a much better way to go. You know, as, in, the, in the worst case scenario, maybe that chandelier did actually fall on him, but that's not what killed him. It was, it was uh, consumption. Uh, now, he had, he had uh, two people working for him. One was his son, Harry, or Henry Giles Fitz, who right. was uh, a boy. He was 15. And he also had an immigrant Irishman, John Byrne, who came over in 1850. And uh, John Byrne's only job he ever had was working for Henry Fitz. And he lived above the shop and rented a room there. And he did uh, learned how to do optical finishing, as did uh, Harry. Right. Uh, but, but Henry was kind of nervous about people going into business and competing with him. So he typically didn't teach most of his employees, the polishers, anything more than the one job they did. So it was, it was partitioned so that right. nobody knew too much. But John Byrne, he was a trusted employee, and he knew he learned everything there was to know. Um, he went into business after Henry died, as did Harry. Uh, but first, John Byrne went off to war. He went, he went into the Civil War in the 1860s. And when he came back, he shows up in the uh, literature as being a telescope maker right off the bat. Uh -huh. So he was kind of New York's next 
uh, important telescope maker, and he was a real high-quality maker, but he only made small telescopes, nothing bigger than a, a six- or seven-inch refractor. And he worked by himself. There's no record of him having any employees. There's a lot of secretive uh, yeah. things about this business. Well, um, so another fellow over in Brooklyn was a fellow named uh, William T. Gregg. Now, he was, he was a combination, kind of like the Pikes, in that he sold a lot of different things, cameras and camera lenses, uh, educational materials, telescopes, microscopes, a little bit of everything. But he was very much interested in astronomy, and he did produce telescopes under the name William T. Gregg. However, he was not an optician talented enough to make his own objectives. Right. He bought those, and he was supplied by Harry Fitz, who some uh-huh. people think was working off of his father's inventory that was still around. And uh, he was also uh, supplied by uh, William and then William and David Mogi, but mostly William Mogi, who was a brass polisher in New York City, uh, who got interested in optics and was making uh, camera optics for the, for the trade and then was making uh, camera optics for William Gregg. So you have all these guys, and they all, they all know each other, and they're all working with each other. Uh, John Byrne was buying parts and, and tubes from Harry Fitz, uh, and, you know, uh, Mogi was making lenses. So there's, there's an industry here, and the reason there's an industry is because of the camera industry, which was huge. So if you compare the two, there were hundreds of camera purveyors in New York City that were selling all over the country and all over the world. There were only a handful of guys making telescopes. That's not so different today from the, from the uh, certain point of view. Yeah, I mean, the, the camera business dwarfs the telescope business. Yeah, but this, uh, you know, it sounds like a, a real explosion in telescope making around this period, which is what, mid, early to mid-19th uh, century? Yeah, early to mid-19th century. And here's where it really took over from Philadelphia and from Boston, which was your first question, because at that point there were no telescope makers. Uh, in Philadelphia, there was one or two purveyors or distributors like Queen and Company, but nobody making telescopes. And there was really only one uh, particular uh, telescope maker in the Boston area, and that was the uh, famous Alvin Clark, and then Alvin Clark and Sons. Yes, I've heard that uh, name. Right, that name's uh, the premier name. So interestingly, Alvin Clark was buying his first glass from Henry Fitz. He would come down to New York, and Fitz would sell him uh, sets of blanks. And then wow. Clark, Clark would go up and make his own telescopes. So they all knew each other, as you said. Uh, they, they definitely all knew each other. And uh, they all knew uh, Drape, the Drapers, and they certainly all knew Rutherford. Uh, and at that point, they were trying to sell to all of the professional astronomers around the country. And, and observatories were going up everywhere. Every college, if you were a college, you weren't a real college if you didn't have a, an astronomical observatory. Well, well, let's talk about observatories in New York. When were the the first ones that you have any knowledge about or evidence of? Well, it, it really, the, uh, the observatories in New York center around the uh, amateur astronomy community because there really wasn't much of a professional astronomy community other than what was happening early on with Columbia University. Right. And and through through the Drapers, I guess, in a minor way, uh, NYU. Okay. So con- consider that in the by the middle to later eighteen hundreds though, people already understood that you needed darker skies. And the street lights of New York City were a bit prohibitive even then. And, and, the, and the smog and the, the generally, uh, I'll say the generally lousy weather for astronomy. You know, you don't get enough clear nights and it's humid in the summertime. And this is, let's face it, New York City is not the premier place for observing. But there was a large contingent of telescope enthusiasts 
and especially centered in, in, of all places, Brooklyn. So part of it started out with uh, the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences, and uh, which eventually became, and now it's uh, the Brooklyn Museum, right? Um, which I love, which I know I love. So, right. So um, the, the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences uh, had, in, in the 1880s, uh, started out as the American Astronomical Society. It was the first American Astronomical Society. People, people don't know that. However, no. it's, not, it's not what we know of today as the American Astronomical Society. Right. Because it morphed into the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences. And then the AAS started up again under that name as a, as a national organization. Right. Right. Uh, but so this, this early American Astronomical Society uh, invited in the Brooklyn Institute, and then it all became the Brooklyn Institute, and which had an astronomy division. So uh -huh. there, are all these, there are all these name changes and, and things going on. Uh, but that thrived into the 20th century. Uh, so some of the early uh, members of the American Astronomical Society and the, and then the Brooklyn Institute's Astronomical Division was uh, Stephen Van Cullen White, uh, who was a financier and a lawyer, uh, Daniel Edgecombe, uh, John uh, Ferris, William Gregg, right? Well, one of the members was a fellow named Parkhurst. He had, his first observatory was in 1862, and he had a, uh, a six-inch refractor. Um, and then he had a nine inch made by Harry Fitz, um, which was 112 inches, it was re relatively short focal length, fast uh, ratio, but yeah. it was mounted by William Gregg. Right? And then he had about is, four other. This is so incestuous, I can't keep track. But. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a, well, and see, this is kind of the point that there was this, this really big, well, for us, for astronomers, there was a very active. Uh, integrated and and well-connected community of telescope makers, yeah. some scientists uh, like Rutherford and the Drapers, and then people, you know, so, uh, uh, astronomers at Columbia, and then uh, mm -hmm. there were all these other amateurs. But they were they were very active amateurs. Some of them were doing science, contributing results. Uh, so uh, there was a Reverend uh, John Ferris. He lived in uh, Flatbush, and he had uh, a, an observatory with a five-inch Clark refractor uh, from 1870. There's a fellow named uh, Charles Post. He was a very wealthy investor and lawyer in Manhattan. He married into money, too. So what he did was he bought the six-inch telescope that was the private telescope of William T. Gregg, who had an observatory near his shop, or actually at his home in Brooklyn. Okay. So when Greg died, his wife sold that telescope to Post. And um, the first thing Post did was uh, change the lens out. He bought a six-inch Brashear lens for it, and he had it for uh, many, many years, and that one ended up being donated to the American Association for, the, uh, for Variable Star Observers, AAVSO. Okay. Right. And it eventually sold at auction several times. Uh, it still exists. It most recently sold in Scotland, of all places. Why not? Um, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's a number of, there, there are quite a, a few more of these sort of dilettante, well-to-do amateur astronomers in Brooklyn. There were a couple in, in Manhattan, but there were some observatories. So there was one at Packer College. Oh, Packer. I know that place. Okay. Well, there was a tall tower, uh, and in 1859, uh, they mounted a six and an eighth inch Henry Fitz refractor there. Huh. Uh, I don't know that that building still exists. I think it was torn down. Uh, if you're talking about Packer, which is now, uh, um, you know, a high school in, in my neighborhood, then it's still there, but not that building. 
Yeah, no, I mean, they, I think the uh, Packer Institute. The Packer Institute, that's it, yeah. Yeah, that still exists, but it's not yeah. in the original building. No. Uh, then there was something called the Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn. Uh, well, Brooklyn, there's Brooklyn Poly, that's still well, there. Well, that would be it. That's Yeah, Brooklyn Polytech. Okay. And they had an observatory. Uh, there's not much information about the telescope that went in it. And I'm not even convinced that one ever was in there because there were some stories about an eight-inch refractor that was supposed to go there that may not have gone. But uh, I think you once years ago showed me a picture of a, fair, a pretty large observatory yeah. where, where the Brooklyn Promenade is now. Yeah, well, that was Stephen Van Cullen White's, but he bought, he bought it in the house and the observatory from uh, Jacob Campbell. And I, I wrote an article for Eyepiece uh, that people can go back and, and look at. But Campbell bought a 12-inch Fitz refractor in 1863. Now, he, even today, a 12-inch refractor is a good-sized telescope. Uh, it's a, it, was, it is a big honking telescope with a beautiful wood tube. And it uh, still exists today. So the Campbell... Campbell built an observatory uh, behind his house overlooking the Hudson River. And I believe this was just before the Brooklyn Bridge was built. I think the, the telescope was there first. In I don't remember when Brooklyn Bridge was actually built, but this was 1863, but it, it was installed in 1867. Uh, because what happened was the telescope was never delivered by Henry Fitz. He was dead. <laughs> and uh, so it was under construction and had been paid for. And it took a little while, but uh, Campbell had everything that was done sent to the Clarks up in Boston, who was at that point the only major game in town. Uh, the other telescope makers were small potatoes compared to the Clarks. And Alvin Clark finished it. Uh, he used the original glass and objective, um, and uh, he—I I think he rebuilt the uh, tube, and it's on a Clark mount. So it's mostly an Alvin Clark telescope with Fitz glass, and you know. But we really call it a Clark at this point. So the 12-inch Clark was used by uh, Van Cullen White until he went broke around 1900, and he sold it to uh, Wesleyan. Uh, Wesleyan College uh, at the time was an all-girls college, I think. And it's still there, and they still use it. It's in beautiful shape, and it's a magnificent lens. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was Van Cullen White. Uh, he, was, he never contributed much astronomically, but what he did was he let a lot of people use the telescope, which is why it ended up at Wesleyan, because there was a woman teaching here in Brooklyn was teaching astronomy, and she used to take her classes and her students over there. And so when it became available, she was already teaching at Wesleyan and uh, got, some, uh, got some money together and snapped it up. But the dome itself was a pretty impressive sight. Uh, uh, I mean, the, in the picture you showed me, it was is the thing that dominated the view of Brooklyn Heights when seen from the water. It was well known. It was, viewed, it was viewable from the Manhattan side. It was large enough. Uh, I think it was a 15 or 16-foot diameter dome. And it was on a pier that went down 60 feet to the, below the escarpment. So his backyard uh, was on that bluff, which is now the Brooklyn Promenade and the Brooklyn Queens and the, Express. And the BQE, yeah. And, and the BQE. Uh, so it, nothing of it still exists. But, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a major structure. Oh, yeah, and I think I read somewhere it was, when it had the Alvin Clark telescope in it, it was one of the largest private telescopes in the United States. It was. Um, now, another one that was uh, also, you know, actually a little bit larger by the 1860s uh, was Rutherford's refractor, and he had an observatory in Manhattan uh, right next to his house. <laughs> uh, I forget what street it's on, but it was in Lower Manhattan. 
and he used that refractor for many years until it ended up at uh, Columbia. Uh, Columbia had three or four observatories, I think, well, at least one, two, three, at least three, no, four observatories, maybe five, at various times in Manhattan. Right. Uh, reportedly, there was one at its a very early location down around, uh, I think it was down around Soho or uh, in that, that part of uh, very the far tip of Manhattan. Right. Um, and then they, they built a campus. Yeah, Columbia started downtown, and then they yeah. built the campus out at 116th Well, they built, Street. No, there was an interim campus Probably. around 40, 40th Street, 40, and on the east side. Uh, and there was, <laughs> there, there was a temporary observatory on that campus that had a five-inch Clark in it, and the students called it the, the I think they called it the cow pen or something. It wasn't, <laughs> wasn't a particularly good-looking <laughs> observatory. And there's a very funny uh, a satirical work that was written about when they tore it down. And how there was a mob of students that marched up the street with torches and and burned the thing to the ground and and desecrated this cow thing. I mean, it was it was just a joke. Well, Columbia, not, uh, let me say this in passing: Columbia students have therefore not changed over the past hundred years. Well, so what ha what really happened was they built new buildings on that campus, and on top of the library, they planned a new observatory, and they had already removed the telescope, and that old observatory had to come down. So whether yeah. they really let the students tear it down or not, who knows, but it made yeah. for a great, great story. Yeah. Well, speaking uh, of Columbia, um, even today, if you go to Pupin Hall, which houses the physics and astronomy departments, um, there are a few domes on the roof of Pupin where they, uh, at least pre-COVID, and you know, maybe they've already started it up again, where they have uh, public viewing through those telescopes uh, every couple of weeks. Um, but I'm not sure how, you know, as of today, what other observatories there are in New York City. Can you enlighten us a bit? Well, yes. Um First, I'll comment on Pupin. Right now, it's currently not being used because of COVID, and they've been they've been renovating it uh, to to upgrade the uh, Schmidt-Cassegrain grain that's in there, and the dome is slated for some repair and renovation as well. So that's in a state of flux. Yeah, I've looked through that uh, Schmidt-Cassegrain. Um, before that, they had a 12-inch Clark which mm -hmm. was a beautiful telescope that they sold for not a lot of money. And that's resurrected in South Carolina. Now, um, other, other observatories that are uh, currently uh, or recently working in New York City, out on Staten Island, first of all, there is an observatory at the, community, at the CUNY uh, campus on Staten Island uh, that is operable, and they use it and teach astronomy. For them. There is a 16-inch mead uh, in a dome at Queensborough Community College out here in Queens. That's been there for about, I don't know, 30 years or so, at least. And I don't know if they're using it or not. Uh, but it's a you know relatively modern telescope in a modern dome. Yeah. And then, uh, more interestingly, there is a dome at Brooklyn College. And this dome was put up in uh, the late 1930s, and it was the work of a professor who ran the physics and astronomy department, a fellow named Weinrich. And Weinrich, uh, when, when Brooklyn College was conceived and built, uh, he was involved in the design of... Um, Ingersoll Hall, which is where the science department is and was, and he made sure there was a uh, an observatory put up there, and they have a seven-inch uh, J.W. Fecker uh, refractor. It's an achromatic refractor in a beautiful copper-clad dome up on top, wow. fifth floor of uh, Ingersoll. Now, what happened was in eighteen, I'm sorry, in 1995, uh, it was discovered that pigeons had gotten in there and 
defecated all over the place and the telescope and everything. And in a fit of irrational bad science, they shuttered the dome and declared it a biohazard. Oh. Uh, the reality is well, that, The reality is they could have discovered the cosmic microwave background radiation. Ha ha. Well, that's a joke. <laughs> that would have been cute with that telescope. But uh, what, what really is sad is that they could have just had it cleaned by any professional cleaning service. Right. Because it wouldn't be the first time someone had a clean, you know, pigeon guano. So it's been shuttered ever since. So that's now there are, but there there are a couple other observatories. There's one in in Midtown Manhattan, and I want to say it's either on 34th or 54th Street that is still on the roof of a home, uh, about four or five stories up, and the home uh, was again owned by some wealthy dilettante who used this telescope. It hasn't been used. I don't think there's a telescope in there. Now, there is a dome there, and it's net net. They built a high-rise apartment building right next to it, you know. So that that took out half the sky anyway. Okay, well, if any of our listeners are familiar with this mysterious dome in Midtown that Bart is talking about, please let us know. Write to us at triple sky at triple dot org. Um, Bart, I think that's a good place to stop for now. Um, I'm not going to ask you for your favorite location in New York because you already answered that the last time you were on this show. So all I can say is thank you once again, Bart, for spending your time with AAA Sky. It was great. Thank you, Stan. Well, Stan, this was a history lesson for me for sure um it's no secret that bart is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to this stuff most of the names um facts that he presented i had no clue and i you know consider myself pretty well knowledgeable in the field of astronomy well to be honest i haven't heard of them either yeah so obviously coming from the astrophotography background um, i thought it was really cool that he mentioned the first photo of the moon ever taken was in 1840 and that a gentleman by the name of henry draper first photographed m42 that's one of my favorite objects in the sky especially winter time you know there's no milky way there's not much going on except the ever handsome orion so that was kind of cool i thought um another thing he mentioned was a Cassegrain telescope. So that's kind of a broad term. Why don't you delve into that and explain to our listeners what Cassegrain could be? Okay, I can do that. So um, the name Cassegrain came from uh, the, the fellow who designed the first Cassegrain telescope in the 17th century. And his name, uh, he was French, so his name was Laurent Cassegrain or Cassegrain in English. And what makes a Cassegrain telescope a Cassegrain is that the primary mirror, it's a reflecting telescope, okay? And the primary mirror has a hole in the center so that the light hits the primary mirror and then it reflects off of the primary to a secondary mirror, which then reflects it back through the hole so that you, the eyepiece is behind the primary mirror. That's the basic design of any Cassegrain. And of course there's, um, since then, there have been all kinds of uh, different kinds of Cassegrains that have been that, that have come into existence. So probably the most well-known today is the Schmidt Cassegrain, which puts a correcting lens up at the front of the telescope. There's a Ritchie Chrétien, um, which is what most you know enormous professional telescopes like the Keck and the Hubble and 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 things like that use. Um, there's a Dahl Kirkham, which is becoming increasingly popular. Um, there's a Maxitov. So there's all different kinds of Cassegrain telescopes, but what makes them Cassegrains is that they have a hole in the mirror. Well, it's no secret between the two of us who is the, uh, telescope aficionado and who's not. I can talk to you all day about cameras, but telescopes, it's you, Stan. Um, how do you think these uh, telescopes that Bart mentions compared to my Tasco I got as a birthday present <laughs> in second grade? 
Well, I hope there were a lot better than that because I had a, I had a Tesco in second grade as well, a little red Tesco, and I looked at the moon with it, and at the time I thought that was incredible. Um, uh, same. That's uh, I remember taking it out in my mom's driveway, looking at the moon, and that's when I fell in love with astronomy. So, yeah, okay, we've progressed since then. Yes, we have. Um, and then you know, I thought it was also interesting about the sort of business side of the telescopes that he got into in New York City. He mentions how Henry Fitz was basically the king of telescope making and selling and how he sort of kept his industry secrets secret, except for his son and a gentleman by the name of John Byrne. What'd you think of that? Um, there's a lot of a lot of secretiveness going on, I, I guess. It was a fledgling industry and, I guess, dependent on the camera industry, which is not so different from today. Um, the thing which really struck me, well, I don't know, it was that there was actually somebody in the first half of the 19th century complaining about pollution in the case of you know, coal being burnt in New York, covering in mirrors, or even light pollution from the streetlights of New York City. Uh, things have really not changed that much. everyone's favorite part of the podcast or one of them anyway it's now time for the AAA sky listener challenge where we ask you a question about a previous episode and we award a prize to a winner selected at random from among all correct answers so stan do we have a winner from last episode yes we do maggie we asked you last month where the smart telescope stellina is made and we do have a winner with the correct answer um, who will be receiving our famous AAA Sky hoodie. It's Tom Bessoir, who correctly said that Stellina is in fact made in France. Congrats to Tom. And Stan, what's our listener challenge for today? Well, our question for today is, for which agency was Stan Honda working when he photographed the space shuttle launches? You can enter by sending your answer an email to listenerchallenge, all one word, listenerchallenge, at aaa.org. Just be sure to get your entry in by the deadline of midnight, January 13th, Eastern Standard Time, for a chance to win that hoodie. And if you're not a member, please stop by aaa.org to learn more about the AAA and how you can become part of it. Use the code aaasky 21 that's in one word, to get a 15% discount on your first year membership dues. And if you'd like to contact us at AAA Sky, you can email us at aaasky at aaa.org. Keep your comments and suggestions coming. Well, that's our show. Tune in next month when we bring you a whole new year of AAA Sky. AAA Sky Audio Editing and Original Music is written by Preston Staley. Our technical producer is Parker Bossier.